Good morning and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, April 2nd, we're studying Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 through 68. Jesus' disciples have all fled, just as he said they would. But what about Jesus? How will he fare in his trial? As the scribes and elders literally put Jesus on trial in today's text, we will see that our Lord stands resolute where all others fail, and he does that to save sinners. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us Pastor Sean Smith. Pastor Smith serves the dual parish of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Wine Hill, Illinois, and Emmanuel Lutheran Church in West Point, Illinois. He's also the host of Concord Matters here on Worldwide KFUO. You can listen to him and his guest confessors every Tuesday afternoon at 2 p.m. Central. Pastor Smith, welcome back to Sharper Iron. It's a great pleasure to be here with you studying God's Word. As we get started this morning, Pastor Smith, give us some context in Matthew 26. What do we need to know going into today's text? Okay, so today's text, Matthew 26, 57 through 68, I think it's helpful for us to back up a few verses to 26, verse 54, where we see Jesus saying, but how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? That comes in the context of Jesus getting arrested in the garden uh, as he's going to be led then for this this trial that's taking place um, before the chief priest in our text to today. Uh, but uh, the key phrase in there that Jesus says the scriptures be fulfilled. That appears in Matthew's gospel nine times. And this is a, a particular characteristic of Matthew's gospel. He brings this up several times, those, those nine times, referencing the scriptures, uh, what we would know as the Old Testament. Um, but for, for Matthew, who is writing uh, his gospel and, and the New Testament is being formed in, in his real time, um, uh, the, the, the reference to the scriptures then would be what we know as the Old Testament. So nine times he references that the scriptures are to be fulfilled, but then there's around 40 formal quotes from the Old Testament scriptures in Matthew's gospel and over 100 allusions to it. Um, and, 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 Probably even more than that. I mean, it's, it's probably just kind of working behind the scenes of all of it here uh, as as Matthew is making the point that uh, this this Jesus is fulfilling the Old Testament scriptures. He is the promised Messiah. Uh, Dr. David Scare in his book, Discourses in Matthew, Jesus Teaches the Church, uh, lays this out. Uh, I, I like what he does in his work on Matthew in this, uh, that he presents it as, you know, this is, this is catechesis for the early church, and especially Matthew's audience, uh, the, the catechumens, um, they, they are largely Jewish, and they and, and so Matthew is is using um, you know the the language and the the promises 
uh, of the scriptures about the Messiah as his kind of operation uh, for presenting who Jesus the Christ is. And Christ, remember, uh, is, is a word uh, in the Greek that just simply means the anointed one. The Hebrew Old Testament uh, text for that uh, or Old Testament word for that would be Messiah. And so that, that's what we're talking about here, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And so the, these references to the Old Testament is definitely a, a big focus for Matthew going forward, especially then as we jump into uh, our text to today uh, with uh, verse 57 through 68, that we would see in this kind of uh, two worldviews coming and clashing together. And, and one of the worldviews uh, or, or ways of seeing and describing the world is that of the Jewish religious leaders, uh, uh, the, the leaders of the people of Israel. Uh, but we're going to see that they have a rather worldly perspective. They're focused on the institutions of man and the things of this world, worldly power, dominance, authority, those sorts of things. And that's going to contrast with Jesus's worldview, which is a very heavenly perspective, the ways of God, and kind of that overarching narrative. Uh, and then this is going to all come to a hub, especially in the central question at issue, uh, which is about the temple and messiahship as, uh, as uh, we see uh, in the teaching and life of Jesus and who he is uh, as the fulfillment of all of those promises brought together in Jesus the Messiah or Jesus the Christ. The irony is is pretty stark here that that Matthew uses the language of the Old Testament the scriptures to present who Christ is and it is the very people who should have known those scriptures and and if you'd asked them would have claimed to have known the scriptures backward and forward that those are the people who miss what Jesus is doing and who end up setting themselves against what Jesus is doing. And that, that irony is something that we've seen play out already in the Passion narrative, and we'll see continue to play out in the text for today, these two opposing worldviews, the things of man from the, the chief priests and the scribes on the one hand, and the things of God from Jesus on the other. And so how Matthew puts those two together in, in contrast to us, that, that we would, as to go back all the way to, to chapter 16 and Peter's confession of the Christ that, and, and the, the fallout of that where, where Peter tries to stop Jesus from going to the cross and Peter or Jesus uses that language to Peter right there. Right? You're, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And so here we have those two worldviews coming together again, clashing. And, and so that we as, as Christians, those who are being taught would set ourselves on the side of of Christ, of the things of God, rather than the things of man. Any any more comments or response, Pastor Smith, before we dig into the text? Well, I like how what you highlighted there that, uh, yes, this is this is a consistent theme that we see, and, and I like how you brought in that we're going to see that come in again, uh, Peter's uh, reference to Jesus as the Messiah, but then also uh, uh, Jesus's rebuke of him with his mind on the things of man rather than on the things of God. Uh, this is a driving theme all the way throughout uh, Matthew's presentation of the Gospel of Jesus. Uh, one quote that I'd like to bring in is from a book uh, by Jack Dean King. Uh, Matthew's story, um, 
that uh, it, it says this, if Jesus is the protagonist of Matthew's story, then the religious leaders as his principal opponents in the human realm are the antagonists. And so we constantly see this tension back and forth. And, and again, my kind of uh, presentation of this uh, text that we're dealing with today is definitely centered on that tension between these two groups. And not just because Jesus is, is standing there before the high priest, you know, kind of the, the head of the, the religious leaders of uh, Israel, but uh, definitely playing out in, in kind of the, well, the lack of discourse uh, at one point, but then the discourse there uh, is, is this tension really coming to a head of, uh, you know, the, the, they have their minds on the things as I said, the temple and messiahship and what that is all about. And, and, and just another brief note before we actually jump into the text uh, to, 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 to bring it into focus that the, the real issue, the real central question here is about the temple and messiahship. Uh, there is a link between the temple and messiahship. We want to keep that in mind as we uh, see what is said in this trial today um, that, uh, that, even Herod uh, himself, and, and remember, there are six Herods talked about in the Bible. The Herod uh, that I'm talking about here is Herod the Great. Uh, Herod Antipas is the one that is present at the time, and in Luke's presentation of the gospel um, would be the one that Jesus goes and stands before. But, but Herod the Great, the first of the six Herods uh, referenced in the Scripture, the same one that is present at the Christmas story, uh, in 37 B.C., he was responsible for enlarging the Temple Mount, and he rebuilt the temple, and history records him as a Messiah of sorts um, uh, for the people of Israel because the temple is so central to the life of God's people um, and what they fail to see is, is what God is doing in and through Jesus as the Messiah and this link with the temple. And so we're going to want that in the back of our minds as well as we jump in then with uh, verse 57 and moving forward. Here is the text, Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, He deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? That's the text for today, Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 through 68. Pastor Smith, the, the main antagonist here, as you said, the, the chief priests, the scribes, 
Pharisees, they all kind of get lumped together in, in many respects. Here, the, the one who stands out particularly is Caiaphas. He's named for us. He's the high priest. What, what do we need to know about this particular high priest? All right. So, uh, as you said, the high priest, scribes, elders, they're lumped together. They make up what we call the Sanhedrin, and that would show up more in Mark's presentation of this. Um, but uh, as, as you correctly identified for us, Caiaphas is the focus here. And what we want to note about him as the high priest, uh, what we have to understand is, is how things worked in, in the appointing of a high priest for Israel. And so as, as high priest, he is responsible for the temple, which again is the center of everything for, for Judaism. And uh, Caiaphas, as high priest, um, he would have also then been anointed as high priest. We see this show up in the Old Testament, um, especially in, in the appointing of Aaron as high priest over Israel, Moses' brother, um, and, and all of the high priests would have been this as well. And so once again, we see at work here, um, even as I said that Herod... Uh, uh, the great who who is responsible for expanding the uh, temple grounds and rebuilding the temple uh, was considered a messiah. So also the high priest, in the strictest sense of the term, is also considered a messiah because again, remember that messiah literally means the anointed one, and again, the Greek word for that is Christ. Well, of course, that's who Jesus is. Jesus is the Christ. He's being presented as the Messiah, the anointed of God, and that's going to continue to be a driving theme. And so Caiaphas here as priest, um, he was appointed um, to be responsible for the temple, and, and he was anointed to do so. So perhaps we're being led by Matthew here to to consider the question, who really is the priest here? Or who, as you said, the priest having been anointed for his task, who is the one who's truly been anointed by God? Is it is it Caiaphas or is it Jesus? And I, I think it's, and I'm not sure, you, you could tell me what you think of this, Pastor Smith. Uh, Matthew names Caiaphas in verse 57, but from there on out, at least in our text today, he doesn't use the name, but he uses the title. He keeps saying the high priest said this, or the high priest did this. Seeming, I mean, at least the way that I would see that is that he's emphasizing, here's what this man who claims to be high priest or who thinks he's the high priest is acting, but he's not really. Instead, the true priest, he's the one who's being put on trial and being falsely convicted. Absolutely. I think that this connects in exactly with what the whole book of Hebrews is about, that we would see that ultimately Jesus is our great high priest, the once and final high priest. But you see that also in the, in the presentation of Matthew's gospel. It's very evident that we should be identifying very clearly with Jesus. And, and, I, and I like what you brought up there that, uh, you know, I, I hadn't even really caught that myself, that, you know, he names them at first, but then just kind of references his office. And, and this is part and parcel to what had happened from, you know, the end of the Old Testament uh, to the intertestamental period, that time in between the Testaments, and then certainly as Jesus comes in, that, you know, the, the, the offices established by God for the leading of God's people had been crumbling and becoming uh, unfaithful and just really you know, needed to be done away with, even more so for the matters of our salvation, that they 
go away and fade away and that we would then see and identify with Jesus as the true high priest. And, and this is certainly the focus that Matthew is driving us towards. And you see this be, right from the beginning of Matthew's gospel, because he begins his gospel with these words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's one verse one at the beginning of Matthew. This is a clear presentation of Jesus as Israel's Messiah, because we know um, that the promise was given to Abraham, uh, that the Messiah would come from his uh, line, the, the great nation that God had come uh would be building out of Abraham's line. And then, of course, in there also David, uh, that it would be of the house and lineage of David, uh, which, of course, we get in Luke's gospel. Um, but uh, we know um, that uh, when we're familiar with our Old Testament, that the, the Messiah language um, uh, is definitely connected to David and Abraham. And so there's a clear presentation of Jesus as Messiah. Then it goes on in Matthew 1, verse 18, says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Uh, Christ is the Greek equivalent, again, of that Hebrew word Messiah, again, literally meaning the anointed one. Matthew is presenting Jesus as the promised Messiah, um, who, who would also be the great high priest. Um, and then Matthew continues on, Matthew one twenty two. all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes in one twenty three Isaiah 7.14, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And of course, in the Old Testament, God is with his people. He dwells in the midst of them. In the temple, uh, John 2, verse 21, Jesus says uh, when he's talking about the destruction of the temple, and this will come up again a little bit later, that he was really talking about the temple of his body. Um, and, and so clearly, um, who's responsible for the temple again? Well, it's the high priest. And Jesus is the temple. He's the high priest. He's the Messiah. And, and all of these things are linked together. And we should definitely be seeing what Matthew is doing and bringing all of them together and, and kind of opposing them here to Caiaphas, or, or even just, I, I think you can accurately say, as you brought in, just the office of high priest, because Jesus is the true high priest. He is the temple. He is the Messiah. They all come together in him. Right, the one who who should I mean Caiaphas as the high priest should recognize in Jesus the temple and should should take care of the temple right should should go to the temple for worship and and Caiaphas misses that and and so do so do the rest of the people with him Jesus versus Caiaphas if you want to think of it in that way that those are the two primary actors here but but Matthew does tell us that Caiaphas is certainly not alone in this he mentions in the first verse verse 57 the scribes the elders later he's going to call uh, he's going to talk about the chief priest the whole council what what is this gathering that that Caiaphas has assembled here to put Jesus on trial so that's what I referenced earlier as the, the Sanhedrin. Again, more clear in Mark's presentation of this, but it's a, it's the Jewish ruling council, if you will. It's a group of 70 plus men or so, uh, from the priests, the nobles, the elders. Um, so certainly Herod would have fit in here as well to some level. Um, and, and what is unclear here, although probably pretty evident, 
is that it's not the entire assembly of the Sanhedrin. It's, it's kind of a, a smaller group, if you will. And, and it's also not an official gathering of the Sanhedrin either. Um, we we uh, saw that earlier um, when they got frustrated with Jesus, went away and began their plot, they went to Caiaphas's house. And, and again, it references here that they're, they're gathered at uh, his palace. And so this is, uh, this is not the official place that they gather together for, um, but, uh, you know, uh, it, they are the, the religious leaders that are responsible for the temple. They're also responsible for, for the teaching and sort of the uprisings that come out and so forth like that. And so they do have uh, both a religious and a civil function for the, for the nation of Israel as well. Um, and so uh, that's, that's coming into play here as well, that uh, they're, they're not just cons- uh, worried about religious concerns, although, as you said, they certainly should be. They should have recognized Jesus, but they're kind of antagonists with him all the way through the gospel, opposed to his teaching. They're not recognizing it, uh, so they should have been supporting and caring for him and his earthly ministry, um, but uh, they're not. So they have their minds on other things. Um, but then also, um, it's not just that religious component, but it's the civil component. And what you have going on in Jerusalem at this time is a great feast. They don't want any distractions from that. They know that Rome gets really testy when the Jews get out of hand at this time and, and are all packed in. And so there's extra guards around from the Romans and things like that. So they're trying to deal with this Jesus issue. And he's been a problem all week during Holy Week. I mean, he's he's driven out money changers in the temple and they've, they've had lots of confrontations with him at the temple and not seeing uh, what's going, what's truly going on in Jesus' earthly ministry there. And so they're also performing the civil role of trying to, to deal with the Jesus problem, lest there be an uprising at this time and create problems for them as Jews with their, their overlords, the, the Roman Empire. Now, this, this text today primarily centers on this matter of the trial, which is both religious and civil in nature. But Matthew makes mention of, of Peter here in passing. He's going to come to, to Peter's denial after our text. We'll, we'll look at that tomorrow on our, on our show. But he mentions him here in verse 58. What, what do we need to know about Peter just from this text, Pastor Smith? Yeah, I, I like that connection. It, it's it, it connects the text that is to come that you'll handle tomorrow really well with this text. But, but at least as, as Peter is brought in here to let you know that he's there, um, I, again, I'm kind of pulling from Dr. Scare's uh, discourses in Matthew here uh, that uh, the, the reader as a catechumen uh, being instructed by this, um, we, we can take the position with Peter here that we're kind of waiting to see the outcome with regard to what, what's going to happen here with Jesus the Christ. Um, and, uh, and, and as the, the word you know, the, that is used here, he sat with the guards to see the end. The Greek word there is telos, uh, which is you know, the, the, what, what we profess in our Christian faith of the end of all things, right? You know, what, what, is, what is going to happen here? What's the goal? What's the, you know, what is, what is going to happen for us? And so as Christians, we confess this in the creed that we believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. That's our telos. And that is accomplished by what Jesus does here in his suffering, passion, and death, right? And, uh, and, and so 
basically Peter's just kind of sitting there saying, you know, what's, what's going to happen here? You know, what's going to play out? And I think that this is a fascinating, and here I'm stepping aside from what uh, Dr. Scare uh, talks about, but, uh, um, you know, kind of just imagining if, if I'm the catechumen, though, and, and sitting this, I do rather identify with Peter in this, because how often do we uh, do this, you know, ourselves, right? We're kind of we, we want to be close to Christ. We want to be connected with him, but we're also just waiting to see how things turn out. And I think that this is interesting because Peter has actually left the company of Jesus. He's one of the ones that flees when Jesus is arrested. And now he's literally sitting with the enemies of Jesus. He's, he's sitting with the guards. And so this is, again, just I see myself at this. I, sometimes, perhaps when I read through Scripture, I over-identify with Peter in so many ways. But I definitely see this connection here where times, you know, it's like I want to keep most of myself in the world, enjoying all the worldly uh, things that uh, entice me and, and, and so forth. Um, but I want to remain connected to Christ. I want to keep at least one foot there close to him. And, and we'll just wait and see how this turns out. And uh, that way I can jump on over if, hey, if it turns out that Jesus is vindicated here, I mean, and, and especially from Peter's perspective, having his mind on the things of the world, right? Even though he has confessed that he believes that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, the son of the living God, he, he's also been rebuked and said, your mind's on worldly things, not on the things of God. And, uh, and so, you know, but he's keeping close here because if his mind on worldly things is, is that Jesus is here to make Israel great again and the rebellion jumps off here, well then, hey, I'm ready to jump back over to Jesus' side at this point. But, but again, the connection for us is that we're kind of sitting here as catechumens and seeing this play out and, well, you know, what, what is going on? You know, what, what is shown in Jesus and as this trial plays out? Uh, it, Matthew tells us that Peter was following Jesus, and as you said, at a distance, though. It, it takes us back to, to Jesus' call of Peter back in Matthew chapter 4. He told Peter, follow me. And here Peter is following Jesus, but but not exactly. And and two, this matter of, of sitting there waiting to know the end, well, okay, but Jesus told you what the end would be, Peter. He he told you what was going to happen to him. He, he told you, Peter, what was going to happen to you, that you're going to deny him three times. And so, yeah, to see to see Peter sort of following Jesus, yet without without really grasping or, or holding on to the truth of his words is, is certainly a, a good thing for us as Christians today to, to see where, where do we do that? Where do we sort of follow Jesus and not really listen to what he said is going to happen to this end. And I love the highlight that you have of that word, tell us, end. Thinking to John's gospel, what does Jesus say right before he dies? It is finished. That's the end that Jesus is driving to. You're listening to Sharper Iron here on Worldwide KFUO. We're going to take a short break, but we'll be right back. Please stick around.
Since 1978, Lutheran Church Extension Fund has had the humble privilege of supporting Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Ministries and her workers. Thanks to faithful investors, LCEF has provided thousands of church workers, congregations, schools, and organizations with the low-cost loans and resources they need to reach more people with the saving name of Christ. To learn more, visit lcef.org or call 800-843-5233. 800-843-5233. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. On this Thursday, April 2nd, we're studying Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 through 68, with Pastor Sean Smith of St. Paul Lutheran Church in Wine Hill, Illinois, and Emmanuel Lutheran Church in West Point, Illinois, also the host of Concord Matters here on Worldwide KFUO. Pastor Smith, prior to the break, we were getting the setup for Jesus' trial, and and Matthew really starts telling us what happened at the trial, beginning in verse 59. And he tells us what the, the chief priests and the council are looking for. It sounds like they've already got their mind made up, and they're just looking for, for something that they can base this verdict on. What do we see, starting in verse 59? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, I hone in on the words here that they were seeking false testimony, right, against Jesus. And so th- this proves, you know, their guilt before God, that they're, they're breaking the commandments. Uh, they're breaking, namely, at least the eighth commandment, um, that they are not, um, you know, not, not even giving the, the benefit of an honest and fair trial. This is just a sham trial. They have their minds made up. They have already decided that Jesus is guilty. They want him put to death. Um, but in order for them to go to Pilate, because they don't have the, the power to execute anyone themselves, they have to submit to their uh, Roman overlords there. And that's, and so Pilate is the governor of the area. They're going to have to go to him, but they're going to have to go with some evidence. And uh, for myself, I'm not exactly sure. Maybe you have some thoughts on this, Pastor Apple. I'm not sure. Uh, it, it seems like that they could have just kind of conjured up this this evidence um, and just gone to Pilate right away. But uh, but at least they're trying to give the the facade of fairness and truth by allowing him this um, trial here now. Uh, and so they are they are clearly seeking evidence uh, to condemn Jesus. He's going to give them more than enough eventually, but uh, uh, they're, they're uh, going to uh, try and conjure it up here at the present time. Yeah, it, it, that's all the way I've always read it, too. I, I'm, I'm reminded of the, the catechism where, where Luther tells us about uh, watching out for, for that which we do which only appears right. And, and that's what seems to be going on here. They're doing that which appears right, that they for some reason, they want to to make this look right in the eyes of maybe their people, uh, maybe maybe the eyes of Pilate. Maybe maybe they're concerned that Pilate's going to come along and say, "Well, did you did you follow your own rules?" Uh, but yeah, it seems that they're they're putting up a show for the sake of of looking good, even though they they already have their minds made up. And it it is it's it's almost humorous to watch. They know what they need to get. They need something, but they can't get it. I mean, and, and even the fact that it says they're seeking false testimony, they know they're they know they're looking for lies. But it, it seems that they can't even get two people to agree on a, on a lie to get Jesus. It's it's almost a bit comical, in my opinion. Absolutely, which I, I think drives us into the next verse then as well. That uh, 
You know, it says, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. It, it, it's interesting that even as they're looking for and they get several to come forward, it's, it's obvious enough in these false witnesses that they can't even put them, quote unquote, on the stand, as it were. There, there are lots of people, maybe, maybe if we translate this into our modern culture, there's lots of people on social media putting things out there, but none of it is good enough for evidence, right? There's no one who's worthy enough to be called to the stand uh, to provide actual evidence that they can go to pilot with uh, seeking this this conviction uh, that would uh, lead to the execution of death. And for themselves, too, they, they need at least two witnesses, uh, which it does say at least two came forward. Um, but uh, back in Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, it says, one witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of any crime or offense that they have may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And, and this is still, um, you know, we, we would say in our modern um, a uh, you know judicial system that you know there has to be a preponderance of the evidence right so, you know we, there, there has to be more than just some you know, just one person who who presents something we have to have you know lots of things evidence coming together uh, in order to get a conviction and and it's interesting they're not finding any um, even w though many false witnesses are coming forward. And I want to come back to the not finding any, but especially I want to highlight something that comes to us from uh, Dr. Gibbs's, uh, uh, Jeffrey uh, Gibbs uh, commentary, a Cordia commentary on this section of Matthew. He, he talks about that there's some interesting variant uh, readings in the uh, textual criticism. You know, we have different copies of the various manuscripts, and as we pull them together, um, that, you know, after after Duo, the vast majority of the manuscripts uh, that we have, these various copies, um, adds either false witnesses or certain false witnesses. And uh, Dr. Gibbs says this, he said, one could argue that the tradition added the terms as a harmonization to false witnesses earlier in the verse. One could also argue that scribes shortened the text because the testimony given by these unnamed two was not false at all, because Jesus' words in John 2, verse 19 are pretty approximate to what we have here in Matthew as, as to what they're going to say, uh, and, and that'll follow in the next verse in 61 what they actually say. And so uh, Dr. Gibbs continues, and so Matthew would not have called them false witnesses necessarily because it does it does jive with things that Jesus actually said. And so on the face of it, the nearer context would exert a more powerful influence, Dr. Gibbs says. The shorter reading is likely the original, namely that uh, there are these two that came forward, and I don't know that we can necessarily identify them as false witnesses. They are, in Matthew's gospel, worthy of being put on the stand. Um, but I, I want to come back um, also to how that verse begins, but they found none. I think there's an interesting catechism connection here for us with the second article and what Luther uh, so wonderfully teaches us, uh, the second article, the confession of Jesus the Christ means for us. Um, he, he teaches us that this means that Jesus Christ has redeemed me with his holy, precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death. 
that I may be his own and live under him in his kingdom. Again, kind of drawing together what I've been presenting from the beginning is, is that you have the clash of the two worldviews here, the ways and things of God, that's his kingdom and, and how he wants his people to live in it. And, and Luther just pulls this together and highlights for us that it's, it's in the shedding of his holy precious blood, his suffering and death, of course, but he highlights that it is an innocent suffering and death. And we dare not leave that out, especially as the gospel here, especially Matthew's gospel presents to us, but they're not even able to find any. It's a sham trial. False witnesses are coming forward. Um, and, and ultimately, even the two that do come forward, even though maybe not false, what end, uh, ends up happening is that Jesus is vindicated in what he said, and they are charging against him. So even though they're giving actual charges against him, Jesus is ultimately vindicated. And so he is truly uh, the innocent suffering servant um, that we may be his own. Right. Yeah. Jesus' innocence is, is paramount here. I'm reminded of what Paul says in Second Corinthians chapter 5, that, that he who knew no sin that's the one who became sin for us. And so to see Jesus as innocent throughout his entire passion is, is a key, so that, that when we see him take our sin, then we know that his innocence, his righteousness is bestowed upon us. So this is, this is a very important point to make, that Jesus is innocent. He goes forward suffering as the holy and righteous one in order to take our sin upon himself and give his holiness and righteousness to us. What about this charge, then, that, that is brought uh, to, uh, to Jesus? I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. You said we shouldn't understand that as false witness, because that sounds a lot like what Jesus has, in fact, said. Absolutely. Matthew doesn't include that statement um, by Jesus in his gospel, but John's gospel does record this, that Jesus said uh, in, in chapter 2, verse 19, that he would destroy this temple and he will raise it again in three days. And so this isn't a false charge. Jesus did say that. But again, in the broader context, especially a couple of verses later there in John chapter 2, uh, we see what he's really talking about is the temple of his body. Jesus is the temple. And so it's clearly a, a point to uh, Jesus's prediction and claim about his resurrection. Um, but uh, we should also understand that the leaders probably see this as a claim that Jesus wanted to be another Herod, again, re responsible for building the temple, and that Jesus wants to erect a temple in his own name, that he may be the Messiah. And so from the, the worldly perspective of the physical building and who's responsible for building it, who's responsible for caring for it, uh, who is the Messiah of Israel, um, they have their minds set on these, this worldly thing of a bunch of uh, brick and mortar, right? Um, when Jesus all along is pointing to himself as the true temple, the true high priest, the great one over Israel, and, uh, and we should be focused there. This is the center of the whole conflict between uh, Jesus and the religious leaders, and especially here before Caiaphas. And so it's not a false charge um, because Jesus did say that, um, but they don't understand what Jesus was talking about. Right. And for all of our, our grammatical friends out there, 
in John chapter 2, it, it, we probably should point out that in John chapter 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and the subject there is, is you. It's an imperative. So he's, he's telling the Jews there, you destroy this temple, and I'll rebuild it. But, but again, this isn't, that's not to say that what they're saying is false, because this is how they've understood it. And, and so here's the charge, and it brings us back to that central point. Who's the high priest? Who's the temple? Where is the worship of God taking place? What does all this center on? And and the chief priests, the Sanhedrin, they are thinking in in terms of worldly things. Jesus has himself in mind. So so now the charge has been put forward. The high priest puts it before Jesus, but Jesus doesn't say anything. What's going on there? Well, here Jesus is reflecting once again that the scriptures may be fulfilled. He's reflecting the suffering servant Messiah that is presented in Isaiah chapter 53, specifically verse 7, where it says, He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Uh, again, this, this all comes together in, in the titles of Jesus as Messiah, Son of God. They're referring to him as, as this one who has come to save Israel, and he remains silent, um, fulfilling that prophecy. We get a lot of titles that all come together there in verses 63 and 64. In verse 63, the high priest, having heard Jesus' silence, says, No, I, I adjure you by the living God. He says, Tell us if you're the Christ. There's one title. The Son of God. There's another title. Jesus and his answer is going to, to say, You said that. And then he's going to bring up the title, The Son of Man, which is a title that we've seen throughout Matthew's gospel. Help us to to sort out these various titles and their significance all together here. Absolutely. So the titles, uh, Messiah, Christ, um, again, a mean anointed one, um, uh, the Son of God, they refer to a, a kingly identity. Uh, it's important to note here that a lot of times uh, more contemporary readers of, of the gospel uh, in our own times as well, of course, um, we're prone to hear Son of God as a divine title, um, but to first century Jews, uh, it, it is a messianic one. It's, it's the one pointing to uh, the, the promised one who would come to save his people. And remember that there have been various messiahs. Of course, there's been various false messiahs, but there have been various messiahs of Israel uh, that have saved them. I mean, just going back to the Old Testament, an obvious one is, of course, Moses, who God worked through um, to, uh, to lead his people out of slavery. Um, David has been a messiah of sorts for Israel, especially in the expanding of the kingdom. But but then also just this, this Son of God also refers to Israel in general. They are God's chosen ones, uh, uh, a people who are set apart. They are anointed um, as, as his people. And so, uh, you know, this, this isn't necessarily a reference to, to the divine titles we might think of. That's more the Son of Man um, that uh, connects in with the prophecy of Daniel, uh, specifically Daniel 7, 13 through 14, where Daniel pictures a Son of Man figure entering the heavenly court and being vindicated and glorified. And, and that's, that's the one who is, who is the ultimate divine um, Savior, divine Messiah, if you will. And so, yeah, you're right. We have all these titles going 
on, but they all come together in Jesus. And that's really important because um, a lot of times as we talk about Jesus, uh, you know, especially as I teach in confirmation and in my Bible classes, uh, a way that we can think of uh, who Jesus is is essentially Israel reduced to one, all of the Old Testament, all of what God says about all of the messiahs, all of the the, the suffering servant, the people that he uses, uh, the, the people of God themselves in, in the nation of Israel, all of it comes together. Well, the temple and the tabernacle and those sorts of things, obviously, too, all of it comes together in Jesus. And so we, we see that coming together right here um, in, in these various titles coming together. And Jesus receives these titles willingly, Christ, Son of God, Son of Man, his preferred title for himself throughout the Gospel of Matthew. What exactly is he telling the Sanhedrin that they are going to see? He says, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What, what is it that Jesus is telling these people they are going to see? Well, he's, he's saying that he's going to... Uh... Um, that uh, it's it's this reference to uh, Daniel 7 again, that uh, this this, uh, power and authority of the one who goes into the the heavenly throne room, right, Uh, that uh, he is is the one um, who who actually has this authority um, as, as the divine son of God. So maybe and I should have been a bit more specific with my question then. When when I hear that, and I think when many people hear that today, the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven, that sounds a lot like last day, end of all things language. Is Jesus talking about them seeing the last day, or is he talking about something else? That's that's maybe is that a, does that help where I'm trying to get you? Yeah, so I, that that's an important point to make. Absolutely. So he's not talking about the last day um, specifically, although that's connected in here. Uh, again, we get this in the uh, the second article of the creed um, that the person and work of Jesus continues on through the last day. But I think the poor primary focus is what he's about to do here on the cross. Uh, that's the ultimate vindication of Jesus. Well, certainly also his resurrection uh, is the great miracle that confirms that he is exactly who he is claimed to be. Uh, so another catechism connection uh, for us here, again, with the second article, we confess that I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord. And just as he is risen from the dead, lives and reigns to all eternity. And so Jesus, as he comes in the person and work that he does here on earth, uh, through the cross, through his innocent suffering and death, the shedding of his blood, and onto his resurrection and into uh, his return and into eternity, it all comes together in Jesus here. Right. Yeah. And that, and as you said, the last day is certainly involved in this, but, but essentially what he's saying to them is from now on, right, from this moment on, what you're going to see is, is vindication that I am, in fact, the Christ, the Son of God, the Son of Man. And that's, that's shown in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension, and, and true, in his, in his final coming. But he's, he's telling them, what you're about to see is going to prove that what I am saying to you is true. Now, the high priest does not believe this. He, he, 
has a very symbolic action. He tears his robes. Very dramatic moment, it would seem. Why does he tear his robes, and should he have done that? Yeah, well, and first of all, yeah, I think it's helpful to identify why he tears his robe, and maybe I I should have covered this with the the previous point as well, but uh, we'll hit it here now, Um, that in the vindication of Jesus going into the, the heavenly courtroom, if you will, that that he'll do by his suffering, innocent suffering and death upon the cross. Um, In his response to Caiaphas, the high priest, he's actually kind of giving them more evidence uh, and and a second charge, if you will, to then go to Pilate with. Um, So uh, I'm I'm pulling this from uh, Daryl Bach uh, in his commentary, uh, as as it's called, Blasphemy and Exaltation in Judaism. Um, he, He says this, Uh, that this was an attack on the Jewish leadership and would have counted as a charge of blasphemy, too. He says, Jesus attacked the leadership by implicitly claiming to be their future judge. This world would be seen as, or or this would rather be seen as a violation of Exodus chapter 22, verse 28, where God's leaders are not to be cursed, a claim that their authority was non-existent and that they would be accounted among the wicked is a total rejection of their authority. So to the leadership, this was an affront to God as they were, in their own view, God's established chosen leadership. That's what uh, Daryl Bach says. And so this is, this is really key that when he says, you know, you have said so, but then he takes it further and he says, from now on, you're going to see the Son of Man seated on the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What I'm about to do on the cross, that's, you're going to be judged. Right, and certainly that that plays out again in the the once or the final judgment, um, and so uh, this is an affront to their you know who they are and their office that they hold, and so then the high priest Caiaphas he he tears his robes because he's like well now you've really heard the blasphemy I mean he was talking about the temple and destroying that but now he's just said that he's my judge and how dare you Jesus. And so he, he tears his robes here as, uh, as he hears this blasphemy from Jesus' own words. And, and so he says, what further witnesses do you need? Sometimes I think we miss that um, without understanding uh, that, that key text from Exodus 22 of how Jesus has just uttered his own words of blasphemy right in front of them. Sometimes I think we're still thinking about uh, the false witnesses when we hear this text read or when we read it. Um, but uh, really, the high priest is responding to those words that Jesus just basically told him, I am your judge. I am over you. And that's an affront to them and their office as they see it, um, divinely instituted from God. So in, in their eyes, Jesus has convicted himself. They've got everything they need now for their own uh, vindication and also now to take it to Pilate. And yet in reality, by tearing his robes, the high priest is the one who's convicted himself. This was something that the Old Testament said no to. Absolutely. So uh, th- this is um, uh, the, the, the Old Testament in Leviticus 10 and also 21. The high priest was expressly forbidden. Le- Leviticus, uh, again, remember, I should say uh, that uh, uh, they're 
known for the law, the Levitical laws, what guides the conduct of the priests, especially the high priest. And so Leviticus 10 and 21, the high priest was expressly forbidden to rend his clothes, to tear his clothes. And also God warns against this sort of hypocrisy in Joel chapter 2, verse 13, when he says, don't tear your clothing in grief, but tear your hearts instead. Return, uh, another word that we would translate that as is repent to the Lord your God for he is merciful and compassionate slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love he is eager to relent and not punish so the response that Caiaphas should have had here is that he should have repented and this is we see this play out all the time especially in Jesus's earthly ministry right there's really two responses to Jesus there are those who get angry at his words and there are those who turn in repentance and receive forgiveness and the the appropriate response uh, because it's the way that leads to salvation is always that of repentance but we still see this in a, in our lives today as well that uh, uh, confronted with Jesus and who he is and the claims of Jesus um, we still see uh, there's two responses that of anger but the the more preferred the one that we should have is one of repentance and here Caiaphas the high priest he does not have that position of repentance uh, he instead tears his clothes breaking the Levitical laws himself um, and so he's worried and upset about the blasphemy that Jesus has, has uttered but he fails to see his own sin and repent also and the anger only flows forth from there. It gets really ugly really quickly. Verses 67 and 68 are the conclusion for our text. Pastor Smith, we've got about two minutes here on the morning. Give us, give us your thoughts on those concluding verses and wrap the morning up for us. Well, uh, just jumping into there, I, I just want to share this one note from uh, Dr. Gibbs again in his commentary where he says, Until Jesus speaks... Uh, his hearing that is this trial cannot move toward the end. And so there, I think another interesting tie back into what uh, we had with Peter that we're looking for the telos for the end. And, and it can't move forward until you have Jesus finally speak and vindicate or, or say who he is. He's going to be vindicated in his death and resurrection. Uh, but then, as you say, um, in these last concluding verses, it, it turns violent, this anger towards him. And, uh, and this is an interesting irony that the Messiah, um, whose prophetic abilities uh, that they are mocking um, here, uh, was in fact predicted as the very rejection and condemnation that he is undergoing. Again, we see the connection back to Isaiah, um, especially as that suffering servant. And so it's an interesting irony going on here and, and what they're doing to him. They're, they're helping him uh, fulfill the, the, what the scriptures have spoken. Pastor Sean Smith is the pastor at St. Paul Lutheran Church in Wine Hill, Illinois, and Emmanuel Lutheran Church in West Point, Illinois, also the host of Concord Matters here on Worldwide KFU, helping us this morning with Matthew chapter 26, verses 57 through 68. Pastor Smith, thank you for your time. A pleasure to be here. Jesus is put on trial. It's a sham trial. There's no justice here. The chief priests have forsaken their office. The high priest in particular has done what the Old Testament commanded him not to do. But Jesus shines forth as the sinless one, the innocent one. And his innocence is for you and for me to cover us with his righteousness and holiness that we receive in word and in sacrament today. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us here on Sharper Iron. Talk to you again tomorrow.